While you're stretching out your old knees, why don't you turn to John chapter 7. That's how I know I'm getting older. Feel the burn. In uh, John chapter 7 is a, a little bit, parents, you'll resonate with this, when uh, a mom or dad yells throughout the house to their kid um, and gives them an instruction. And that kid says, okay. And then five minutes later, no action. Uh, an hour later, no action. Right. And so you go and you talk to them. Hey, why didn't you, whatever, fill uh, fill the dishwasher or take out the trash. And they said, oh, I didn't hear that. You're like, no, 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 you did because you said, okay. I yelled, you said, okay, and now suddenly you don't, don't hear it. That's what John chapter seven is about. Jesus is gonna be saying things clearly and people are going to be deciding whether they're gonna hear it or not. Remember, one of the things that Jesus said consistently is whoever has ears, let them here. Whoever has ears, let them hear. He said that all the time. So in Jesus' mind, it's possible to have the hearing ability that comes along with our ears, but not hear actually what he's saying. Remember when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain with him, and he was transfigured before them, meaning he put back on his heavenly glory that he had set aside when he was born in Bethlehem. Peter, James, and John saw this. Peter comes up with a great idea. We're going to build a little monument right here. We can kind of go up on top of the mountain and be with God because God himself had come down in the form of a cloud on top of that mountain. And, and God thinks that that's such a royally bad idea that God the Father speaks to Peter out of the cloud, and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So we know what the will of God is today for our lives, that we would listen to Jesus. So our dilemma is, am I hearing what Jesus is saying or am I doing what my kids and your kids do? Am I just hearing what I want to hear? Because I believe that when I shout instructions to them, what they're hearing is, my dad loves me so much and he doesn't want me to do anything ever. He wants me to sit right here, keep watching TV, keep doing this. I'm so affirmed in his love that I'm just going to just do nothing, right? I believe that's what they're hearing, and that's not obviously what I'm saying. So are we hearing what Jesus is saying, or are we just hearing what I want to hear? So I brought a list of some signs uh, that would maybe help us know, am I hearing only what I want to hear? So see if any of these fit, and if so, let's wear them together. Number one, Jesus is always on my side of the issue. We have lots of views in the room this morning. We have political views. We have schooling views. We have uh, parenting views. We have marriage views. We have financial views. All right, lots of views. And if you have found that Jesus of Nazareth always agrees with you, and more than that, he is your number one cheerleader in your views, I bet somewhere along the way you and I are really just hearing what we want to hear because Jesus made it clear that he is on his side and he invites us into his side. Uh, he does not necessarily join our side. Number two, I need tweaks, others need transformation. The alcoholic needs transformation. The prodigal needs transformation. The wayward sinner needs transformation. Our enemies need transformation. But what I need is a fresh coat of paint. I need some minor adjustments. Right? 
It's like what we want our bosses to say at the end of the year during our evaluation. Hey, you are great. Do we all have room to grow and improve? For sure. But honestly, it's really hard for me to think of anything that you need to, to grow in and improve. That's what we want our bosses to say. And that's what most of us assume is true about us. Do we need some minor adjustments? Are we perfect? No. But transformation is for other people, not for me. But if we're really hearing what Jesus is saying in his teachings, and then we look at our lives, well, at least I need a lot of transformation still. Number three, I expect much from others, but little from myself. I have one standard for other people, and I have another standard for me. I demand a lot out of my church experience, but I'm too busy to contribute anything, out, anything to it. I demand a lot out of my spouse, but uh, right now I can't give anything. I demand a lot from my boss, but um, I'm satisfied with what I'm bringing to the table. Number four, I take challenges to status quo personally offensive. So when we do encounter somebody who is following Christ, maybe with a little bit more intensity than we are or a little bit more desire. And, and that's the great thing about being in the family of God is, you know, some of us are ahead on some things and, and, and then some of us are ahead in other things. Right? N- none of us is just, just ahead. We all have learning to do from one another. And as we are bumping into one another and we bump into someone's maturity where we are immature, we Receive that challenge, not as a challenge to step up, but as a a, a personal offense. How could they question that about me? Or we find a a fault in them that would dismiss any responsibility that we would have. And and God forbid whoever is teaching us would touch one of our views and, and that God might have something to say about one of our views. Then we have to discredit and we have to, uh, you know, find any excuse not to do it. Because it's personally offensive. It gets to my personhood, not just one of my behaviors or something that, uh, one of my ideologies. Number five, following Christ fits nicely with all other goals. So if pretty much you can do and pursue everything that you want to do and pursue in this life, and being a Christian just fits seamlessly inside of that, I promise you there is an aspect of Jesus' teaching that you are hearing what you want to hear. Because if we read the Gospels the way that they are, following Christ does not fit seamlessly with anything. It confronts all of our goals. So I know there are a few of those or five of those things that are true for me. And if so for you, then we really want to listen to John chapter 7. As you're looking at it there, it's, it's kind of a wordy, passage of scripture. In fact, I'm guessing if you are somebody who underlines and things in your Bible, uh, you might not have anything underlined in verses 1 through 36 of John chapter 7. It doesn't have one of those John 3:16 anchor verses, you know, one of those that we get to and we're like, oh yeah, that's so good. It's just a lot of teaching from Jesus and it's a lot of questions from the people surrounding Jesus. And that has helped me understand it. There are five questions that these people are asking about Jesus. And I want to give you all five up front and then we'll go back through them so that you can see them as we get there. Number one, there are questions about his travel. 
Number two, there are questions about his teaching. Is his teaching from God or, or not? There are questions about his faithfulness. Is he being true to what God wants uh, in the law or not? There are questions about where he was from, and there are questions about where he's going. So, number one, questions about his travel. Verse se chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went around Galilee. He did, want to go, he did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. Now, Bible scholars tell us that there's probably six months in between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, which means probably for the last year, Jesus has been in the northern half of Israel and he stayed away from the southern half where Jerusalem is because the last time he was in Jerusalem in John chapter 5, he healed a man on the Sabbath day and the religious leaders, because it was a offense to the them. It was a challenge to their status quo. They were trying to kill him. And so he remained up in the north because down in the south is where these religious leaders had also political influence. They could arrest him. Up in the north, it was governed by Herod Antipas, who was really loyal to the Roman Empire. He didn't care much about the religion of the Jewish people. He would give some nods to it. But his primary concern was not being killed by the Roman Empire. So as long as Jesus didn't do anything that uh, made him uh, vulnerable to the empire, then he was fine with Jesus going around. So Jesus has spent the last year up in the north. He's staying away from the south. But in verse 2, when the Jewish festivals of tabernacles was near, there were three feasts every year that the Jewish people would go and celebrate in Jerusalem. So imagine if every 4th of July, every American that was able went to Washington, D.C., I mean, I'm getting a panic attack just thinking about all of us being there. It sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? Three times a year, the Jewish people would go and celebrate a feast in Jerusalem. The first one was Passover, which was in the spring. The second one was a month or so later called the Feast of Weeks. And then in the fall, during harvest time or after harvest time had happened, there was the Feast of the Tabernacles. So this is the feast that it's talking about. Verse 3, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now later on his brothers will believe in him, but not right now. And you can imagine why. If one of your brothers or sisters started saying, If you want to honor God, you've got to first honor me. Right? If you want to worship God, you've got to worship me. That might be hard for you to believe too. So they have this skepticism about their brother. They recognize that crowds are following him. They recognize that he's doing things that make it seem like he is the Messiah. He's not really saying that out loud. And so their advice is, why are you doing this up here in the north? Go to Jerusalem, the religious and political capital of our nation. Do all of this teaching and all of these signs down there so you can have more and more disciples. It would be like if you ran for the president of the United States, but you only campaigned in Montana and Wyoming. Eventually, somebody would say, hey, if you really want to be this, you got to go to New York and you got to go to Houston. You got to go to Dallas. You got to go to Los Angeles. You got to go to Vegas. You got to get out of the countryside. It's great that all these people up here want to vote for you for president, but even if every single one of them supported you, you still got to win the rest of the nation. That's what his brothers, with a hint of sarcasm, are saying to Jesus. If you're really set on this, then get out of the backwoods of Galilee and get yourself down to Jerusalem. Verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not here yet. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. 
Now, when he mentions his time, he's talking about his suffering, um, his crucifixion, his substitution for us so that our sins could be forgiven. He's saying it's not time for me yet to be arrested. He says any time is good for you. But he says, whenever I go, I testify to the world that its works are evil. In 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John gives a great description of this world that Jesus is talking about. And I think it summarizes our culture so well. He says that the world is the, the desire of our flesh, the desire of our eyes, and the boasting of what we have and do. Can you think of three sentences better fit to describe the culture that we uh, live in and the culture that we honestly participate in? The desire of our flesh. Why do we want the things that we want? They just, we just want them. We can't trace their histories back, really. No one Googles, what should I be longing for? It, It just comes naturally. The desire of our flesh, the desire of our eyes. Why do we have most of the things that we have? Because we saw someone else have them and we want them for ourselves. And then the boasting of what he has and does. What happens when we get all those things we want? We tell everybody we have the things that we want. We can't help it but but boast. Boast about our possessions, boast about our kids, boast about our jobs, boast about our vacations. We, We just can't help it. And Jesus says that whenever he goes to Jerusalem, whenever he does his ministry, he testifies. He gets on the stand and swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that the world's works are evil. He is countercultural. He's swimming upstream. And as the fish swimming down the stream bump into him, they feel that exposing of evil. That's the way that they should feel around us. Christians are kind and they're loving and they represent Jesus so well. But whenever I bump into them, I, I feel a conviction. I, I feel like they're testifying that the works that our world does are, are evil. He says to his brothers, any time is good for you because you're just swimming downstream. Verse 8, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has yet not fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now remember, the religious leaders, later on, they are going to recruit Judas to betray Jesus. And the reason they do that is because they wanted to arrest Jesus in private. Because whenever Jesus would teach, uh, he would be surrounded by the crowds, and the crowds protected him. Even though not everybody in the crowd believed in him, there was a certain protection that his popularity gave him. And so they were always looking to arrest him away from those crowds. And so they recruit Judas to let them know when Jesus would be away from the crowds. And G- Judas says it's actually in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, later today at this time. This is where he usually goes to pray. So it could be that Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem with the rest of these pilgrims to celebrate the feast because the religious leaders would have known. I bet he's traveling with other people from Nazareth, other people from Capernaum. They could arrest him before he got to the city and before he got all those crowds around him in the temple. So it could be that Jesus is outfoxing them and he's going to hang back so that when they search for him among the travelers, he isn't there. But for whatever reason, he waits. But then in verse 10, he decides to go. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Remember, he's going in secret because it's not his time yet. It's not time for him to suffer. 
But a few chapters from now in chapter 12, it will be that time. And that's why he triumphantly enters into Jerusalem. Remember, on the donkey, people along the side of the road, waving their palm branches, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and Hosanna in the highest. But this time he's sneaking into Jerusalem. Verse 11, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would dare say anything because of the fear of the leader. So there's a wide spectrum about Jesus. Some people say he's good. Uh, some people say he's evil. But neither one wanted to say anything out loud because the leaders didn't want to hear about Jesus in any capacity. So that's the questions about his travel, questions about his teaching. Verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? So Jesus begins to go to the temple and there in the temple courts out in the complex. If you considered yourself a teacher, you would just start teaching. And people would gather around to listen to you. So if you were teaching and only your grandma was there listening to you, maybe teaching is not for you. But when Jesus taught, lots of people would come around. And so halfway through the festival, he begins to do this. And they wonder, how'd this guy get so good at this? Because Jesus didn't go to Harvard. He didn't go to Yale. He didn't go to seminary. Uh, Mary and Joseph didn't send him down to Jerusalem to be trained by elite rabbis. He, he was not um, ordained in the way that other rabbis and teachers were ordained. He wasn't in any kind of lineage. But people are amazed by his command of the scripture and the will of God. So Jesus responds, verse 16, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So Jesus says, the reason that you are amazed by my teaching is because it's not actually my teaching. This teaching comes directly from God because I am from God. And then he says, here's how you will know that my teaching truly is from God. Do it. If you will do it, it will self-authenticate. You'll know in the doing Oh, this is holy. This comes from God, which is a good reminder for us. I remember a few years ago, I was mentoring a young man who wanted to become a pastor one day. And uh, he was a brilliant young guy, had lots of questions. And our faith gives opportunity for questions because God has chosen that we relate to him by faith and not by fact. So there are some gaps uh, that we have to fill in with faith. And those gaps leave room for some pretty important questions. At the same time, uh, this young guy had some areas of his life, like all of us, that he was not yet willing to surrender to the Lord. Uh, he knew what the scripture said, and yet he just was not in a place in his life where he wanted to align the things that he was doing and with what the scripture said. And, and Satan used the combination of both of those things. The hardness of heart in him, a refusal to do God's will, and his inquisitive, questioning nature to actually steal him away from the faith. And so we need to make sure that we are always stewarding a readiness to do God's will. Right? Because it's in the doing that we see this is the truth. 
Jesus goes on to defend a little bit more in verse 18. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Jesus says, if I were out here seeking my own glory, then there would be something false in me. But I am seeking the glory of God who sent me. That's how you know I'm not in it for myself. And we understand that. Most of the time that we lie, we're either trying to save ourselves trouble or we're trying to get glory for ourselves, right? I mean, think about when you exaggerate to the point of lying. Isn't it always to impress someone? And we do some stupid things to impress people. I remember when I was 16, my parents took me to church. It was in a season where I would have rather been someplace else beside church. And, uh, but thank God they didn't take a survey every Sunday morning. If you're a parent in here, you don't need to take a poll when you wake up. Just bring your kids to church. I do thank God that my parents didn't ask me what, I should, what they should be doing. I was 16. They were in their whatever, 30s, 40s. I don't, I'm not, still not sure how old my parents are, right? <laughs> My rule is if my kids are not financing their own life, they are not making their own decisions. That's just the rule in our house. Maybe I'm young and naive, but so far it's, it's going fine. Right. But my parents brought me to church. I didn't want to be there. So the way I punished them for that is I would sit in the back with the other kids who didn't want to be there. So before church started, we're all back in the back. And, and a couple of the, the people that were in similar season as me were talking about music and these heavy metal bands and hard rock bands, which is not anything wrong with that inherently that they liked. And I wanted to join in the conversation. So I said, hey, you ever heard of this band? And they were like, oh, yeah. I mean, they're just like the, I mean, the hardest of, <laughs> hard chorus of core. I was like, yeah, I went to their concert a few weeks ago. And they were like, oh, my gosh, what was it? I was like, it was like this and it was like this. And they were just like, whoa. And I was like, whoa, because I never went to a concert. <laughs> I didn't even really know the music of that band except for I heard about them one time, right? And, I mean, why would you lie about something like that? Because uh, there was something in it for me. And that's why we have to be careful when there's something in it for us because it means that falsehood and lying can take root. But Jesus says, I'm not here for me. I'm, I'm here for the glory of God. That's how you know that I'm speaking the truth. There were questions about his faithfulness. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Which makes sense. Half of them don't know what chapter 5 verse 18 says, that the religious leaders were trying to kill Jesus. So they think, here you're teaching in public in the middle of the temple. No one's trying to arrest you, but you're saying people are trying to kill you? You're crazy. Verse 21, and Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. So Jesus, again, is defending this question they have about his faithfulness because he healed this man on the Sabbath back in chapter five. Now they're saying you don't honor God by honoring the law. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Hold on just a second. What you are accusing me of, you also do. You practice circumcision and in the law on the eighth day, your little guy needs to be circumcised. Well, kids are born on all days of the week. 
Day one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Day eight may be on the Sabbath, but they go ahead and circumcise on the Sabbath because they've justified it. But here Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath and they have no justification or patience with that. And Jesus points that out. You're doing a little thing of work on the eighth day of circumcision and I healed his whole body What's your problem? Because they were doing what all of us do when we fall into hypocrisy. One standard for me and another standard for everybody else. There were questions about where he was from. Verse 25, at that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? So, In the next few verses, they're going to go on one hand and on the other hand. So on one hand, some of the crowd knew that the religious leaders were trying to kill him. But it's clear that no one is trying to arrest him, at least in this moment. So in their mind, maybe the religious leaders have changed their mind. And they do think that he's the Messiah on one hand. But on the other hand, verse 27, we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he was from. So it's one of the things that they believed about the Messiah is that he would come in like Clint Eastwood in a Western, just ramble into their small town and fix everything. But they said, we know where Jesus is from. This is Jesus of Nazareth. When the Messiah comes, he's just going to appear. So on one hand, the religious leaders may have been believing in him now. On the other hand, we know where he's from. Then again, on the other hand, Jesus defends Yes, you know me and you know where I'm from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Jesus says to them, yes, you know that I am Jesus of Nazareth. But before I was Jesus of Nazareth, I was Jesus from God. I am from God. I am from heaven. My teaching comes from God. My teaching comes from heaven. Verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man is doing? So on the other hand, he's performing a lot of miracles. We know the Messiah will perform miracles. Is it reasonable to think that someone's going to perform more miracles than Jesus of Nazareth has? So some people believed in him. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. So now the religious leaders have said, enough is enough. We were trying to not arrest him in public, but we can't have people believing that he is the Messiah. And now they're going to question where he's going. Verse 33, Jesus said, I'm with you for only a short time. And when I am going to the one, then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. When it is Jesus' time, time to suffer, he'll be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll be beaten and tortured. He'll be crucified. He'll be buried. Three days later, he will be resurrected. He'll appear to many witnesses. And then he ascends back into heaven. Jesus is saying all this. There will come a time when you are going to look for me, but I will be gone. I will be back with the Father. 
Verse 35, and the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Another common belief that they had about the Messiah is the Messiah might go to Gentiles where Jewish people were spread all over. Uh, the world, and he would bring those Jewish people back to Jerusalem and bring Gentiles who heard the teaching of the Messiah back to Jerusalem with him, and the kingdom of God would all start there. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to go and you're not going to find me, they think, well, maybe this is what he's going to do. He's going to travel, he's going to teach uh, Gentile people, and he's going to bring the Jewish people back to Jerusalem. He was speaking so clearly, and yet they couldn't understand. You know, I, I think the, the days of cultural Christianity are on their way out. Right? That, like, I grew up in church and I want to be a good person. That's going away. What will be left in churches like ours will be people who say, I genuinely want to hear the teaching and the way of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus our Lord, Jesus the Son of God. I want to hear it. I don't just want to hear what I want to hear. And I think that will be the dividing line for many of us. In fact, 2 Timothy tells us when that dividing line is laid down, we'll go and find teachers who tell us what we want to hear. So it's not just that we will read in the scripture what we want to hear. We'll go and find preachers and pastors and authors and speakers and bloggers and Twitterers who tell us what we want to hear and, and it will be them that we follow. But the true believers will hear what Jesus is saying. So, so how do I do that? How do I hear? Three quick things in a minute. Ask God to help you hear. Before you open up the scripture, before you start your day, God, will you let me truly hear the teaching and the way of Jesus? Number two, immerse yourself into life with Christ. Anytime Amanda and I get to go to the beach without our beloved children, I have a little routine, and, and I want to do this routine all day long. I want to get a, a beach chair on the sand, underneath some kind of umbrella, shaded umbrella, and I want to read. And I want to read until I get real hot. And then I want to go and take a quick dip into the water, cool off, then I want to go back and read. Then when I get hot, I'm going to take another dip, and then I'm going to come back and read. If somebody wants to bring me nachos when that's happening, <laughs> I won't complain. If you truly want to hear the teaching and the way of Jesus, we've got to do more than just take a dip into our life with Christ. We've got to be immersed. It, it has to be our whole lives. We have to be plunged into abiding with Christ in prayer. We have to be plunged into the Word of God. 
We have to be plunged and immersed into the mission of God. Not just being content with others doing all of the work, but us doing the work. And when you are immersed into your life with Christ, you are more able to hear what he is saying and not just hear what you want to hear. And then finally, listen to what you hear. When Jesus speaks, when you read his words, and the power of the Holy Spirit comes alongside of you to help you understand them, we do it. And parents, isn't that what we want when we yell to our kids that they don't just say okay, but they hear and they listen. It's what God is asking of us as well. Let's pray.